evening. Take your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter number five. <clears throat> Say just another word about the uh, ballot initiatives that are on the desk in the foyer. Description of all the ballot initiatives that will be on the November ballot. I encourage you to pick up a copy of that and read th- through those so that you will know how you want to vote on those. <clears throat> I mentioned issues six and seven this morning about marijuana, the so-called medical marijuana bill. It, there's a lot of bad things about this particular law. No prescription is required. No pharmacy can sell it. Anyone with pain or nausea can smoke it. Uh, if you live more than 20 miles away from a place that sells it, you can grow it and sell it yourself. Uh, it also includes, uh, much to my dismay, uh, allowing stores to sell marijuana candy and soft drinks that have marijuana in them, which really just proves that it is a recreational marijuana masquerading as medicine. Doesn't it have a place? Yes, it does. It can have. What about people who need marijuana for seizures or cancer? Well, there's, there's a pill, I'm un, I understand. Marinol, a, a marijuana pill that is available with a doctor's prescription. And there are new drugs from the marijuana plant extracts that are undergoing clinical trials <clears throat> and will be uh, regulated at some point. What do we do about the responsible use of it? Well, I think we have to treat it just like we do the poppy plant from which we get morphine and codeine. You extract anything good from it. You create new prescription drugs that are tested and regulated by the FDA, prescribed by a doctor, and distributed by a pharmacy, and thereby eliminate most of the problems that uh, I see with this law. What I see it is is a get-rich scheme for a number of people who think they're going to get wealthy off of this, and they may well do so if it passes. Ephesians chapter 5. <clears throat> really have had a difficult time with the outline on this one. This is the third rendition of the outline. I discovered, was told this morning that I had the wrong one on the back of the message, so I went back and... Re- printed another one, and it was not the most up-to-date outline, so I reprinted it before the evening service, and so we're going to hit it with the one that we have. Now, you may may or may not have noticed that I've been covering a little more verses each evening because we have more time on Sunday night than we do on Sunday morning. And I know how much you people hate to get out of church early, so I tried to remedy that for you. Before I start this evening, I want to let me say that the objective of the message is in no way intended to be critical of those who have less than a perfect marriage relationship. The truth is that none of us have achieved that. This is about God's ideal for the family. Many people have experienced the pain of a broken marriage, and this is not intended to add to the pain. 
It is also true that many people are doing a heroic job of single parenting, and they should be applauded, not criticized for their efforts. The truth found here, though, applies across the board. It applies to widows because the book of Titus says that older women, the widows, should teach the younger women the kinds of wives and mothers that they should be. And while this message may not apply directly to your situation at this particular moment, it may be that the Lord is going to send someone into your path that does need this truth. The Apostle Paul gives the, Paul, the Bible's lengthiest instruction for husbands and wives. And for it, he has been much maligned and his teachings dismissed. It has been said of Paul that he was speaking culturally to his times, and therefore it does not apply to our modern world, or that Paul was a chauvinist and therefore in error. But Paul is no chauvinist. His instruction to women is balanced by an even stronger one to men. Uh, When Paul penned these words, family life in the Roman Empire was in shambles. Divorce and adultery were running rampant, and the institution of marriage was in danger of complete and utter breakdown. The Greek writer Demosthenes describes the widespread immorality of the empire this way. He says, speaking of men, for the men, we keep mistresses for our pleasure, concubines for our day-to-day needs of the body, but we have wives in order to produce children legitimately and to have a trustworthy guardian of our homes. I want us to begin looking this evening, first of all, at the general principle, and that is submission to each other. Verse 21 says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. I think a lot of the problems that arise concerning this passage that we're going to look at this evening is the tendency to begin at verse 22 instead of verse 21. Where Paul says that the husband and wife are to submit to one another in the fear of God. Verse 22 is the end of a very long sentence in Greek. It begins in verse 18 and it does not end until the end of verse 21. Which commands that we be filled with the Spirit. So submission is the last of the five results of being filled with the Spirit. The others are, he says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So submission is a necessary component of a community that is built on love and humility. The key to remember is that all of the submission must flow out of our relationship with Christ. The fear of God or out of the reverence for Christ. All authority belongs to Christ and he alone has the right to designate any position of leadership or command. Most of the problems in the application of the call to submission 
has to do with the fact that we wrongly interpret this as a struggle over power between the wife and the husband in the marriage relationship. Who's in charge, the husband or the wife? And the answer is neither. The correct answer is that in a Christian home, Jesus is in charge. Christ is the head. He is the head of every Christian marriage, just as he is the head of the church. There is no denying that abusive behavior by husbands has been justified on the basis of the biblical teaching of submission. It must be acknowledged that great abuses have been taken place and have led some to see this passage as some kind of attempt at moral subjugation of women by men. But we have to beware of the problem of reading a passage of Scripture today as it was never intended. Because the Scripture has been abused, some people just jettison it from their working canon of Scripture. But among Bible-believing Christians, we are more likely to just quietly ignore it. And that is a real shame because in reality, our text is a reassuring word of encouragement for many women today who are courageously living for God in difficult circumstances. But before we proceed, we need to say a few things about what this call to submission does not mean for Christian women. It does not mean that if your husband asks you to abandon your faith in Christ that you should do so. It does not mean if your husband asks you to sin that you should do so. It does not mean that you should always that you will always agree with him or never present a differing point of view. It does not mean that if he is unfaithful to you that you are left with no biblical recourse. It does not mean that if he abuses you physically or abandons you, that you must remain silently in the home and accept what constitutes daily cruelty of that relationship at all costs. The second thing that we see is the principle applied to marriage. Children sometimes have a humorous insight on love and marriage. When asked, is it better to be single or married? Anita, age nine, says, it's better for girls to be single, but not for boys. Boys need someone to clean up after them. Kenny, age seven, says, that gives me a headache to think about that stuff. I'm just a kid. I don't need that kind of trouble. When asked how to make a marriage work, Bobby, age nine, says, well, you need to be a good kisser. It might make your wife forget that you never take out the trash. Roger, age eight, says, don't forget your wife's name. That will mess up love. And he's right, it will. I find it interesting that with all the things that Paul could have said to men and women, about how they should relate to each other in marriage, he boils it down to two words, love and respect. Wives are to respect their husbands, and husbands are to love their wives. 
First of all, there is a word to the wives. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Paul tells women to submit to their husbands as a way of submitting to the Lord. In truth, the word submit is not even found in verse 21. It is implied from verse I mean, it's not found in verse 22. It is implied from verse 21. So the text literally reads, Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. The the position of submission is one that the wife chooses to assume. The husband is nowhere authorized to attempt to put his wife in submission. Is the duties that wives owe because the Lord deserves it, even if their husbands don't. It is a limited submission, paralleling the limited submission that Christians give to the delegated authority of government. Paul is speaking here only about the marriage relationship between wives and husbands, not about the general relationship between men and women. He makes this clear by saying, your own. Wives are not told to be in submission to every man, but to their own husband. Perhaps surprising to some, the word obey, used for children in verse 1, and servants in verse 5, is not used of wives. They are to submit as to the Lord. This implies that the wife's submission to her husband is a part of her obedience to the Lord and that their reward comes from the Lord. Now, first of all, let me say to husbands, what Jesus says to the wives is none of your business. Much of the disfavor of this passage has to do with husbands who have little or or no right to quoting this verse to their wives and telling them that they have to submit to him. Perhaps no scripture has been more quoted during arguments than this one. But I love the story that Jack Hayford tells, and I've probably told this story before, but it's so good. Jack Hayford tells about a married couple who had attended a marriage seminar taught by a man who was determined to show that Scripture teaches that the man is in charge. It was the kind of terrible teaching on submission that turns women into lowly doormats. Well, this husband just loved it. He had never heard anything like it in his life, and he drank it in. His wife, however, sat there fuming as she listened after hour after hour of this stuff. When they left the meeting, the husband felt drunk with fresh power as he climbed into the car. And while driving home, he said rather pompously, well, what did you think about that? His wife didn't utter a word, and so he continued, I think it was great. When they arrived home, she got out and followed him silently into the house. And once inside, 
he slammed the door and he said, wait right there. Just stand right there. She stood tight-lipped and stared at him. I've been thinking, he said, about what that fellow said tonight, and I want you to know that from now on, that's the way it's going to be around here. You got it? That's the way things are going to be run in this house. And after having said that, he didn't see her for two weeks. After two weeks, he started seeing her a little bit out of one eye. (laughs) You have to be careful where you go with that, right? Nowhere does the Bible say, husbands, tell your wives to submit. Instead, Paul speaks to husbands and wives individually, and he asks each of them to work on their own attitudes. Wives learn to submit to their husbands from watching their husbands submit to the Lord. It should go without saying, then, that any man who does not love and submit to the Lord has no right to expect his wife to submit to him. So, ultimately... If the wife is not submissive to the husband, it may be their fault because they're not more submissive to Christ. In verses 21 through 24, talk about headship. The specific basis of this submission is that God has placed the husband in a family as its head. Paul does not say that the husband ought to be the head of the family. He says he is the head of the family. He may be a weak, ineffective, and just plain lousy at the job, but he still holds the responsibility of being head of the family. Both husband and wife bear mutual responsibility. In order to know what uh, the Lord has to say for each one, my text just got out of line. What happens when you drop your outline? Next, it tells us in verse 33, honor him with respect. Although the King James Version uses the word reverence and some translations use the word fear, it is more accurately translated as in the New King James Version as respect. The Bible is telling us what current research has finally come to conclude, and that is that the fundamental need of every man is respect. Ladies, the tone of your voice and the words that you speak reflect whether or not you respect respect your husband. Just as a mother who does not give proper care of her children receives deserved criticism in our culture, so should a woman who does not show respect for her husband and vice versa. And then in beginning in verse 25, there is a word to the husbands. It is intriguing to note that only three and a half verses are devoted to the wives' duties, whereas the husbands are given almost twice as many, eight and a half verses. Since it takes almost nine verses to explain to men their responsibility as compared with three for the wives, you might indicate that men are a little slow on the uptake. The number one priority that the Lord has established for husbands is to love your wife. Three times in these verses, Paul reminds husbands that they are to love their wives in verse 25, in verse 28, and again in verse 33. In fact, in verse 31, Paul says that the husband's 
relationship to his wife should take precedence over all other relationships, even that of his parents. The husband is now given two models, each introduced by the word as. <clears throat> you are to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she might be holy and without blemish. Husbands are commanded to love their wives. If we are commanded to do something by God, it then follows that it must be possible for us to do so. Because Christ never commands us to do something that he does not empower us to carry out. But what kind of love is he talking about? The Greek language in which the New Testament was originally written was, is a very descriptive language. Unlike English, which only has one word for love, that love use the same word whether you're describing your love for your dog, your favorite food, or your wife. It's all the same word. The Greek language has several different words for love. Notice that he did not use the word philos, the word used to describe a deep affection. So he's not saying, man, you need to have a warm emotional feeling about your wife. Although this is often... The excuse that one uses when they want to ditch ditch their current mate and find another. They say, I just don't feel love for them anymore. Nor did he use the word eros, the word that we get our word erotic from. It's the word used for sexual attraction. Although a good physical relationship is necessary in any marriage, it is not the be-all and end-all. What he did use is the word agape, the unconditional, self-sacrificial, God kind of love. The kind of love that God demonstrated for us in John 3.16. This divine love is not motivated by self-interest or by perceived attractiveness of the one who is loved, but by a sincere interest in that person's well-being. A story of such love comes to us from Greek history. According to the story, the wife of one of the generals of Cyrus, the ruler of Persia, was accused of treason. And she was condemned to die. At first, her husband did, know, did not know what was taking place. But as soon as he heard about it, he rushed to the palace and he, bur- he burst into the throne room. He threw himself on the ground before the king and he cried out, Oh, my Lord Cyrus, take my life instead of hers. Let me die in her place. Cyrus, who was by all historical accounts a noble An extremely sensitive man was touched by that offer, and he said, Love like that must not be separated by death. And then he gave the husband and wife back to each other. 
As they walked away happily, the husband said to his wife, Did you notice how kindly the king looked at us when he gave us your pardon? The wife replied, I had no eyes for the king. I saw only the man who was willing to die in my place. That is the kind of love that husbands are to have for their wives. I would dare say no woman would hesitate to be submissive to a man who loved her like that. It says also that you are to love your wife as your own body. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For No one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. How are we to go about that then? First, by encouraging her spiritual growth. The passage explains how the husband is to love his wife in that fashion when he says, first of all, that husbands are to nourish their wives as they do their own bodies. The word nourish is a word that means to bring to maturity. So it is your job as a husband to encourage your wife's spiritual growth. And secondly, by offering her a sense of protection and security. That's found in the second word. The husband is not only to nourish his wife, he is also to cherish his wife. The same word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. In Deuteronomy 22.6 of a mother bird protecting or cherishing her young. Our wives should have a sense of security because of our love relationship with them. And then it begins in verse 31 to talk about supreme love. He says in verse 31, For this reason a man shall shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, Let each one of you in particular so love his wife as himself. In fact, verse 31 is a direct quote from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. It is a part of Adam's words to Eve. So the decree of God from the beginning has been that a man would leave his parents making a break from his childhood home and to establish a new one with his wife. A new bond of love between husband and wife was to be supreme even over that of your children. The man was to be joined. The word is literally glued to his wife. Man and wife become one flesh in sexual union in total disclosure, in self-giving, and self-commitment. The intimacy of the one flesh goes beyond the physical union and encompasses the blending of every aspect of two lives. The third principle is the principle as it applies to the family. Some people have entitled this verse three verses, which is a word to the children, as, as how to survive your teen years. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, 
with promise that it may be well with you and that you may be live long on the earth. Well, to whom is that commandment written? Obviously, he's writing to children who are old enough to understand the command because he addresses it to them directly. But they could range in age from very young to young adults still living at home. As long as a child is single and dependent on his or her parents for financial support, they are obligated to obey their parents. My father put it this way, as long as you're putting your feet under my table, you will live by my rules which is pretty accurate biblically there. Children are to obey their parents in a way which honors them. Now, what is the first question that a child asks after you tell them to do something, usually? Why? Why? Well, the Bible says, for this is right. Do it because it's right, but more than that, It tells us that there are certain privileges, benefits for such obedience that you may, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And you may say, wait, 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 wait. I I know godly children who died young and I know sinful rebels who lived to a ripe old age and that's true. But the general principle is still true. If you live like a rebel, you're more likely to engage in destructive sins. We have all seen the pictures of rabid destructiveness of alcohol and drug abuse. We've all seen the pictures on the freeway of the meth diet and what that does to a person. And that is what it's saying. There's a destructiveness to sin. And then in verse 4, there is a word to fathers. And we might ask the question, well, why to fathers and not to parents? And the reason being that in the first century, and much as in our own day, uh, there was an absence of the father in the home. And that was a big problem. He says, and you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So there's both a negative charge or challenge and a positive one. First of all, he says, don't provoke your children to wrath. That doesn't mean don't ever make your children mad. Some of the ways that parents provoke their children, and I'll just list off a bunch of them, inconsistency and discipline, being a perfectionist, you expect perfection, showing favoritism between your children, comparing them to their siblings or to other people's children, comparison, unrealistic standards. The opposite is to overindulge them, sometimes because of guilt where we've failed in the past, and to not keep our promises to them, not admitting to them when we make mistakes, being abusive in dealing with them either verbally or physically. Those are but a few of the many ways that parents can exasperate their children, and that's what's being described here. But he says on the other side, the positive side, 
do bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Training is a strong word, which means discipline, even with punishment. It is used in Hebrews twelve six, where it says, whom the Lord chastens. Um, we're living in the after effects of what Dr. Benjamin Spock wrote a book entitled How to Train Up Children. And in that he told them, you don't need to discipline. You don't need to tell them right and wrong. You don't need to give them morals. You don't need to do any of those things. This was written in the 60s and 70s. And when he reached an older point in his life at age 92, he said, I was wrong. They need all of those things. They need the same things that my mother gave me when I was growing up. He recognized the error. And on the other side of that, one side of it is, is training, discipline, can be punishment, spanking. On the other side of that is admonition, which is verbal instructions. Don't give them one without the other. Don't just spank them without giving them an idea of why they're being spanked. The two elements of effective childbearing then are consistent discipline and clear verbal instruction uh, administered in a calm spirit. Uh, The problem is that people usually fall into one of two extremes in child rearing. Discipline without love, which is abuse, and love without discipline, which is permissiveness. The Duke of Windsor once (laughs) said about America, he says, The thing that impresses me most about America is the way parents obey their children. You've probably been in a Walmart and saw a few of those. Where the child threw a big enough fit at the checkout line, I want some candy, I want some candy, I want some candy, I want some candy, and everyone louder and louder than the last until the parent finally gives in. The remark is illustrated by a story that Pastor Lighton Duncan tells. He says a mother of a rather precocious 14-year-old daughter called to tell him that her daughter was giving her fits about coming to church. The father was not involved, but the mother was very concerned because their girl was going to a church that the mother did not approve of. The mother said to Pastor Duncan, what do I do? And so he thought for a few moments and he said, now let me ask a question. Let's see. She's 14, right? She's not driving, right? Now how is she getting to that church? Well, I mean, I'm taking her. Oh, well, here's an idea. How about... You don't take her to that church anymore. And her response was, I can do that? Sometimes you wonder who's in charge. And apparently, who's in charge was uh, the wrong person in this one. The biblical answer, of course, is that, yes, of course you can do that. We have been too much influenced by worldly psychology. Dr. Benjamin Spock among them. 
that tell us that parents should cater to their child's every whim and do not do anything to stifle their, ch- their child's self-esteem or to warp their fragile psyche. Too many parents are afraid to tell their children no. I maintain that every child will push you until you say no. Every child wants limits. And if you don't provide limits in their lives, they are miserable because they do not know what to do. We are doing our children a disservice when we fail to discipline them. If our children do not learn to obey at home, they will face severe challenges in this world when they are faced with being obedient in other phases of their life. And fourth and finally, the principle applied to our work relationships. While this teaching was originally directed to slaves and their masters, we find in them principles that apply equally well to today's workplace and the relationship between employers and employees. The principle is that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ should radically change how we relate In the workplace, first of all, he speaks to servants. We might call them employees. He says, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ and not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. With goodwill, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. In the first century A.D., the servants were an intricate part of the household. Estimates of the number of slaves in the Roman Empire ranged from one-third to one-half of the population of the Roman Empire. Paul outlines what a Christian servant should be willing to give to his master or his employer. First of all, respect, obedience, he says, with fear and trembling. Sincerity, verse 6. Conscientiousness, not mere eye service. That really is an easy word to understand if you just think about it a moment. Eye service. That means when you're being watched, you work. And we've all been around people who, that's the way they work. When somebody was watching them, they worked hard. And pleasant with a good will. Masters, or in the employers, in verse 9. And you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Just as the slave or the laborer must do his service to the Lord, the master or the overseer or the employer must exercise his authority in the realization that God is watching. Roman law may have given master near absolute right to treat his slaves as he wished, but Divine law did not. Earthly masters were going to give an account one day with, to the supreme master of the universe. 
God will hold them responsible for the way they treated the people who worked for them. Paul is advising Christian overseers to do the same thing to them. That is, to treat those that work for them with the same consideration that they themselves would want to be treated. If you want respect, show respect. If you want them to be sincere, then be sincere. If you want them to be conscientious, then be conscientious. If you want them to be pleasant, then treat them that way as well. Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you that your word is so relevant to our day. That all these hundreds of years have gone by and yet the truths are still able to be applied in our lives today with benefits if we will obey your word and live by your rules. Father, may we learn something today, if not to apply in our own lives, then to be able to tell others who might come to us needing help, requesting uh, that we might help them in their trouble as they go through life as well. Help us to be good testimonies, Lord, for you if we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.